Okay, so on Friday, the federal government made available a new app that can help with contact tracing as we continue to battle the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure you've heard of these apps before by now. It's a program essentially that you download on your phone. And basically, if someone gets COVID-19 and they register that on the app, and if you were to then stand close to that person, say you're behind them at the grocery store, your phone would pick up that information from their phone and then let you know that you were in close vicinity to someone else who had tested positive for COVID-19. However, there are some concerns that are being raised with this new federal app, as you may expect. So joining us now to explain a bit more about how it works and what those concerns are is Andrew Barrard, the tech expert from Get Connected. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Nikki. So I gave a little brief uh, explanation as to how these contact tracing apps work. Did I do it justice? Did I explain that well? Yeah, you did, Nikki. And I think the the one thing that um, we should mention about this app is that it doesn't use GPS. And I think that was a great move by the federal government because in Canada, we, we have privacy laws. We have a privacy commissioner. And so they had to make sure that they weren't our, our personal information wasn't going to be compromised to allow this app to, to notify about, you know, if we've been in contact with someone else with COVID. So the fact that they used Bluetooth technology was really, really impressive. And, you know, just if I could geek out for a second, that's really what got <laughs> me excited about this because that technology is inside our phones. But it's rarely used for something like this. So I was really impressed to see that they went that route instead of just using GPS, which I imagine in China is what they're using to track people um, who have COVID or, or could be suspected of having COVID. Is one method better than the other? Because I know that this has certainly been a big concern. How are they going to be how are they going to be tracking people? Essentially, you know, are they going to be keeping that data? Is there one method that's better Bluetooth versus GPS? Well, when it comes to privacy, definitely Bluetooth. Bluetooth. Um, yeah. and, and the reason why is that if people, if you, if you remember Bluetooth when it first came out, it was horrendous. It barely ever worked. Any device that had Bluetooth, the, the battery would die. But over the years, they've, they've released a different Bluetooth standard. And right now we're on a Bluetooth 5 standard, and it is significantly better from previous versions because it has a longer range. So currently right now it can do about 800 feet from one phone to another. It can track, um, you know, if someone is within 800 feet of you. And also it can do faster transfer speed, so up to 2 megabits per second. So that's really impressive as well. Um, So when you combine that new technology of Bluetooth with the anonymity that comes with it, I think that's why it's superior over GPS when it came to this new app, this COVID alert app. So there's obviously some things that you really like about this new COVID app. However, some others are raising concerns about this app, particularly its limitations. What are some of those concerns? Well, Nikki, if you do want to download this app, your phone has to be uh, purchased within the last five years. So if you're with an iPhone, it's got to be an iOS 13.5 operating system on it. So that excludes pretty much iPhone 6 and down. So if you have an iPhone 6S, you can download this app and anything above that. Uh, on the Android side, you're going to need at least version Android 6. And now we're on Android 10. So basically, if you have a phone that's about five years or less, you should be able to use it. If it's a little bit older, you're going to be excluded. And what we know is people from a lower socioeconomic background, 
likely have an older phone and they're the exact people that we want to alert in someone around them has COVID. Yeah, see, that doesn't make any sense to me with this with this tracing app and, and these limitations because, you know, people from a lower socioeconomic background are typically going to be the people who unfortunately have had to keep working with the public throughout this pandemic. They've been working in the grocery stores. They've been, you know, contacting the public in, in many different ways as they've continued to have to work. And these are the exact same people who may not be able to afford a new phone, a brand new Android phone or something like that. So it seems a little crazy that you're marginalizing these people, the ones who really need access to this app the most. Oh, absolutely, Nikki. You know, there was a time when having a phone was a luxury, but now in this digital age, it's really a necessity to have one, but not everyone can afford one of these newer phones. Now, the reason... I'm going to geek out again. The reason why I think this is happening is that uh, the Canadian government had to work with Apple and Google to basically put this little API, a little bit of code inside their operating system. And it's called the Exposure Notification API. And I don't think that was going to work with the older versions of the operating system and the technology inside those phones. So I suspect because older phones are using an older version of Bluetooth, it's not going to be able to be as effective. And then that code, which can't go inside the operating system, are probably two contributing factors why they couldn't get this into older phones. But again, when you look at this app, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau said there's about 30 million potential smartphones in Canada that could have this app. And we need to get at least 65 to 80 percent for this app to be effective. So I really I think they're going for the low hanging fruit, trying to get as many people to download this app so at least it can be effective. And hopefully maybe they can figure out a way to get it onto older phones as well. Now, Canada just made this app available on Friday and not to everywhere in the country, starting with Ontario rolling out into Atlantic Canada. Where are we in relation to the rest of the world as far as timing goes on getting an app like this with its flaws or without its flaws up and running? Well, we definitely could have had it up earlier, but the Canadian government took their time because they wanted to make it user-friendly and they also wanted to make sure that it didn't impede on our privacies. So that took time. You know, the technology was there. They probably could have rolled it out pretty quick. You know, of course, other countries, especially in Asia, already have this technology. You know, if you look in South Korea, even in China, they have it. But like I said in the beginning, I think they're using GPS instead of Bluetooth. So... You know, it's not easy to do, but the fact that I think the government did a pretty good job, the only thing now is to just really get the word out and get people to download it. And I was writing about this on my website this morning. One thing that I would love to see in this app, if the government ever asked me, is to see how many people downloaded it inside the app, because then you know you're, you're doing your part and also make it easy to share that to, to your social network so that everybody kind of understands that this app is now available and that they download it. That's the only way it's going to work, Nikki. What do you mean by download inside the app? So, you know, like sometimes when you download an app, it'll I'll have this little button where you can tweet it or share it with your friends. Right. Inside the COVID app, it doesn't have that. So we've seen private companies try to do this to make it easier. Essentially, what you're trying to do is reduce the friction for people to get this app on the phone. Another thing that we have in Canada is the, uh, uh, the Amber Alert is based on a technology called the Alert Ready, which is Canada's emergency alerting system. I would have loved to see the government try to maybe push this either on a text message 
to every Canadian and encourage them to download the app. That's the only way it's going to work. So yeah. if you reduce the friction and, and make it easier for people to download it, I think you're going to get more success. And uh, I'm kind of curious why they didn't go that route. But, uh, you know, we have that technology. We just need to implement it, um, not just in the Amber Alert side, but now like this is an emergency. So we should all use our emergency alerting system to get this app onto everyone's phone. That's an excellent point. Andy Barrard, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. My pleasure, Nikki. Filling in for Jill Bennett, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Have you heard of the app TikTok before? If you have teens or you have kids that are even younger, I'm sure that you're more than familiar with this app because you probably can't get your kids to stop using this. It's so popular right now. Essentially what it is, it's a new social media platform where you can post a short video of yourself doing something funny, maybe doing a dance, lip syncing to a song, saying something motivational, whatever. And it's really geared towards a younger demographic. You see it really, really popular with young people, particularly teenagers, early 20s, that sort of demo. It's the latest craze on social media, and it is a serious craze with 800 million active users worldwide. However, that craze may be coming to an end, at least in the United States of America, as U.S. President Donald Trump has said he wants to ban the app. We're looking at TikTok. We may be banning TikTok. We may be doing some other things or a couple of options, but a lot of things are happening, so we'll see what happens. But We are looking at a lot of alternatives with respect to TikTok. So why does Trump want to ban this app that so many kids use? And should Canada consider doing the same thing? To explain more, let's welcome Jesse Miller, the founder of Mediated Reality, to the program. Hi, Jesse. Hey, Nikki. How are you? Good, thanks. First of all, let's talk about how big of a craze TikTok is right now. TikTok's huge. Uh, in 2018, 2019, it was consistently tops when it comes to downloads. Uh, its growth was astronomical. And interestingly enough, when we look at social media, we very much look at it through a North American lens of uh, California, uh, Silicon Valley growth of, of platforms that become every day for us, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. But TikTok is the first global social media platform that we really see people in the West uh, and especially in anglicized countries really leaning towards that is not an American product. Right, because India has, what, 611 million TikTok users, uh, followed by China, 196 million TikTok users. The U.S. has 165 million users. I mean, this is like a mega platform that Trump wants to ban. So why does he want to ban it? Well, a couple of things. One, India and China share a border, and this is what happened earlier in the year when there was a border skirmish. We heard that India had banned TikTok for some national security concerns. Um, Within that, though, the Trump administration has recently become more aware of TikTok, almost the same way he's very comfortable in his Twitter use. He's not going to be making fun little videos on TikTok. But a number of very open Trump critics are very popular on TikTok. So this is where it maybe has fallen into his scope of vision. But most importantly, we have to remember that Trump is a nationalist. He, he kind of runs these tropes of patriotism, but he's, he is a self-proclaimed nationalist. And anything that looks like it's anti-American is going to get his ire. So because there's such a global phenomenon within this, and there is a lot of control of TikTok in the United States, 
Uh, he's gone within this nationalist rhetoric of it being kind of a Chinese uh, conspiracy to spy on Americans. And to be fair to that point, uh, any government phone, any kind of person working in military policing probably shouldn't have any form of social media for personal use on a device that's got access to in, in, in information that needs to be protected. But at the end of the day, Trump is using the idea that China's spying to basically rile up his base. And that's why we see a lot of Facebook moms posting memes about how bad TikTok is. Right. Because I think that there is some legitimacy, of course, to the security concerns of TikTok. But when I was researching the story, I was instantly reminded of the Trump rally in Oklahoma last month when kids rallied on this sort of TikTok campaign to reserve a whole bunch of seats at Trump's rally, which made the arena ultimately seem empty. And we know that Trump didn't like that. Yeah. And, and if let's say these TikTok teams had organized it on Instagram or YouTube, there's no way he'd be able to use his executive office to try and shut down Alphabet and say, hey, we're going to shut down YouTube or you need to sell or break up. What's really important here to recognize is that there are national security concerns with any social media platform based on origin country. So Canadians have to bear in mind that when you have Facebook on your phone, the United States government has the potential to look at what you've written on Facebook, even if you feel like it's, you know, your best friend looking at your messages, you don't really care. But what's really interesting here is the United States actually has always tried to get more and more access to social media platforms. And China, because of their communist government and because of the way their government has to have interconnected aspects with capitalist capitalist markets, um, this is actually somewhat envious for the United States. A government can actually look through messages. A government can see things. And so that's where that kind of uh, national security rhetoric comes in. But everyday use of social media shouldn't be the concern here. It's whether or not TikTok will be weaponized in the American election. And most of those voices are Democratic. They are younger, almost the same way in 2008 Barack Obama took really the social media world by storm of really putting his platforms out there. But with this, this is just Trump trying to get some people to look at something for a second, say he's going to change something, and odds are they'll sell parts of it to Microsoft, and then we'll all forget about it in a couple of weeks. Right. So let's just sort of follow that line of thought for a moment, though. Let's say that uh, this company, TikTok, uh, does give its information, our data, to to the Chinese government. What kind of data would they be giving away? Because, you know, as I understand it, TikTok is, is kind of a platform where kids just sort of do funny dances and maybe lip sync to some videos. So what kind of data is so detrimental that could be such a security risk? Yeah, so all social media platforms have certain kind of handshakes with your device. So when you download Facebook, it looks at your contacts, it looks at your photographs, it can read the information and all of that. TikTok does a very similar process, but there are some pieces that are a little bit more intrusive. And we were made aware that uh, TikTok was looking at things that you copied and pasted into your notepad. Uh, It was taking some liberties that some people were taken aback by. But again, this is no different than what other social media platforms do. So when it comes to what's on your device, when we see things like suggested friends on Facebook, that's looking at people you've messaged. That's looking at people you've searched online. TikTok does a similar thing, but it's really looking at how you're producing content or how you're bouncing from one app to the other. And another concern would be how you're actually surfing the Internet. So if you're going to a website and you don't want the Chinese government to know that you've been looking up something, there would be a concern there. I'm actually more of an advocate that anybody who's going to China should be more aware that their platform might be looked at. But majority of people in North America aren't getting on a flight to Beijing. So part of this rhetoric is about understanding that what you do on your phone 
is going to be looked at by a multitude of governments, not just one. In the few seconds that we have left, do you think that Canada would be wise to at least consider, at least look at banning TikTok in Canada because of the security concerns? Not at all, unless, of course, it comes to devices that contains uh, information that would be uh, a concern for national security, military, police, government. uh, No politician should have it on a government phone. Jesse Miller, founder of Mediated Reality. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nikki. All the best. Splashdown. We have visual confirmation for Splashdown. SpaceX copies and concurs. We see Splashdown and mains cut. Dragon Endeavor has returned home. NASA astronauts Bob and Doug. Half of the SpaceX and NASA teams, welcome back to planet Earth and thanks for flying SpaceX. (laughs) That is the sounds of the first commercial space flight returning to Earth. The capsule containing the two astronauts inside, Bob and Doug, splashing down safely in the Gulf of Mexico. What would it have felt like to be inside of that capsule, screaming back down to Earth once again? Well, the spacecraft went from an orbital speed of 28,000 kilometers per hour to 560 kilometers per hour during atmospheric re-entry, and then finally to a very smooth 24 kilometers per hour at splashdown. Peak heating during descent was 1,900 degrees Celsius. That's hard to even comprehend. The anticipated top G-forces felt by the crew, four to five times the force of Earth's gravity. It was the first splashdown, what you just heard there, by U.S. astronauts in 45 years with the first commercially built and operated spacecraft to carry people to and from orbit. Joining us now is Azam Shigagi, president of Space Tourism Canada. Just how exciting is this? Thank you so much for having me. It is very exciting, and obviously it sends us a lot of uh, great messages that we are going to the other planets, and um, space is going to be available for everybody, not just astronauts and um, private, uh, sorry, the government missions, also private or uh, just pleasure uh, missions, too, for, for people. For people who grew up watching Star Trek, much like yourself, I imagine, dreaming that one day you may may be able to catch a private flight to space, to Mars, to the moon, wherever, does it seem like we're one step closer to that reality now? We are, not just one step. We are, I believe, uh, 10,000 steps closer to what actually we can achieve now, uh, because what SpaceX achieved yesterday showed that we are very close to what we can actually do in terms of uh, space and the space economy. It will obviously um, open a lot of uh, windows and roads uh, to to this economy. They're going to get a lot of demands, a lot of different contracts, and this is going to get bigger. There's going to be a huge demand, and it is also a great promise for the next generations and how they're going to be Uh, looking forward in terms of their future, if they're going to be an engineer, if they're going to be an astronaut, if they're going to be a dreamer uh, or just, you know, found their own startup in space economy. So it actually is sending a lot of uh, great uh, positive uh, messages in life.
I find this concept of the space economy so interesting. I was recently having a conversation with a friend who was sort of thinking out loud as we were doing a hike up at uh, Cyprus, actually. Uh, they were suggesting that, you know, America could greatly propel its space interests forward with NASA, I guess, freelancing out some of this work to private companies. And instead of taking on that financial burden themselves, they can tap into these private companies that seem to be growing and thus get more built and get more accomplished and move us even forward into the future. Yes, that's exactly how it's going to actually happen, I believe. Now that NASA is, their space shuttle was retired and the SpaceX, now they're partnering up with the government. And obviously NASA is providing a lot of resources for R&D, space um, research, and somehow training astronauts. Uh, the other burden would be on the private sector because that's where the money is coming from. And also the talents, they are very much... Uh, successful in terms of attracting those talents and obviously less uh, regulation in terms of hiring. Um, They have more um, contingency plans. Um, I remember when I was actually, back in 2009, I I was studying at NASA Ames for um, an executive master program um, with International Space University. Obviously, it it was not um, applicable for us as an international to work at NASA because of um, um, ITAR and all these regulations. But through these private companies, we hope that the talent, international talent, might actually be kind of like attracted and easily hired. Uh, we can see that uh, SpaceX right now is the number two company in terms of engineer it, um, engineering uh, field attraction versus Tesla, then SpaceX, and following Lockheed Martin and all the other uh, companies in in uh, in the engineering sector. So I, I believe that uh, the private sector can actually provide more because that's what where much more resources are available. People are not politically you know involved in anything. They just want to follow their dreams. They just want to work. Um, they they just want to utilize their talents and resources. And also there's so much connections in the private sector the VC connection, angel investors. So obviously the government is, um, is a great partner to be with, but not uh, the great leader to, to lead those uh, operations and the missions. I heard an analyst saying, though, that they think that the government will still be doing these space missions that perhaps are more based on uh, research or, you know, maybe I don't want to say riskier missions because that sounds like there's a physical risk. But, uh, you know, more creative missions where they're trying to explore something new, whereas the private companies will be doing those uh, more financially viable missions to space where they can make a bit of money back on their investment. Exactly. And I think uh, most likely the government would should be there for kind of like monitoring and obviously providing um, uh, or protecting the citizens' rights or the people's rights. We see, you know, we, I don't want to say that, but most companies, the tech companies, they become too big. We know that how uh, they're operating. So it is, it might be sometimes dangerous, specifically in this sector that, you know, it, it's so much, it's limitless. You can operate a lot. It's, it's satellites. It's, uh, space mining, mineral mining, it's asteroid mining, it can get to a level that it has to be monitored. And obviously, the private sector is not capable at this point. Um, there's obviously there has to be a monetary uh, system on this. But obviously, NASA has an amount of resources in terms of R&D, as you mentioned, um, they have a lot of like people can go to the base and obviously the Johnson Center for training and uh, they provide a lot of resources and all these 
um, uh, previous budgets and previous expenses that has been done has to be put to, to the to great use. Obviously, a great partnership between the private sector and the government sector could uh, provide a lot of, you know, achievements. Um, and Canada is not even, I mean, behind. We did that, and we saw that the government provided a lot of budget for the Canadian Space Agency. And the Canadian, I mean, at the International Space Station, we have the Canada arm. We might not talk about it because we're very humble, but Canada is also playing a huge role in the space. And we hope that we actually, through the Space Tourism Society of Canada, we kind of like um, rally all these um, companies and startups that are actually active in Canada, working really hard to uh, to work on uh, great missions and, um, um, you know, uh, supporting the Canada uh, Space Program. Man, it really just makes your imagination run wild, eh, with what the future <laughs> can hold. The, this is this is I mean this is crazy. Uh, I think that yesterday news was the only great news in so far that we could actually hear. And since um, since then that I've been talking to people and like uh, receiving all those reactions and uh, on Twitter and all the other social media, there's a lot of hope uh, for all the um, generations. Even like my parents were so happy. Obviously, for myself, that I always dreamed of going to space, uh, not just as an astronaut, uh, obviously as a private. So we see that there is a lot of potentials, and it's just um, it's very exciting, and it's a lot of enthusiasm in, in, in this field. And we also see there is going to be a huge competition, obviously, between the private companies. Now, SpaceX, is for, for example, is going to be working on launching satellites, and Blue Origin, um, the second venture of Jeff Bezos, uh, is also going to be competing in that area. Basic Virgin Galactic is. So we see a lot of competition is going to rise up. And uh, hopefully when the uh, SpaceX is going to get the certification from NASA after this demo, uh, they're going to be launching a lot of um, commercial uh, missions. Uh, hopefully one is going to be coming up soon in September with four um, astronauts. Wow, um, that so should be we, it. Should be exciting. I'd love to talk to you more about this, but we're flat out of time. Azam Shagagi, thank you so course, much for yeah, speaking to us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. Filling in for Jill Bennett, I'm Nikki Wright Meyer. We know that there's some form of ice or water on the planet Mars. It was nearly 12 years ago that on July 31st. 2008, NASA's Phoenix Mars lander confirmed the president uh, the presence of water on Mars. But in what form did or does that water exist? New UBC research published today in the Journal of Nature Geoscience suggests that those scars that we can see crisscrossing the rough surface of that planet are not from free-flowing rivers, but rather from water melting beneath glacial ice. Joining us now to dig a little bit deeper into this research is Mark Jelinek, professor in UBC's Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. Congratulations on having your paper published, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. You must be, as kind of a side note, pretty excited about this latest NASA mission to Mars, which launched last week, because they're going to be checking out some of this water evidence, correct? They are. Um, they are. Uh, uh, it's kind of an, it's an amazing new mission. And uh, one of the stated goals is to find evidence of water that can support life. Uh, so they, uh, it's the last chapter of a story that... Uh, I guess we're interested in the first chapter. We're interested in ancient Mars, but uh, it's neat to see how, how the end game is. 
Right. And what theories do we have on what ancient Mars looks like prior to the research that you've done? Because my understanding is that scientists think of ancient Mars as being warm and wet. So for about 40 years, really since the discovery of valley systems with uh, very nice pictures that were taken by the Voyager mission, um, the similarity between valleys on Mars and valleys, say, in Western Canada or, any, or many places on Earth, um, uh, really drove a, an idea that's taken hold, that there must have been really free-flowing water everywhere. Um, and for that to happen, Mars would have had to have been quite warm, quite a bit warmer than now, for example. Um, it's a very compelling story. Um, and uh, to challenge it, uh, as we have done, was uh, uh, an interesting process by itself. Um, but uh, what we did, if you um, fly from Vancouver to, let's say, eastern uh, Canada, and you just look out the window, um, you can see different kinds of valleys all over the place. As you go from the coast into coast range and into the Rockies, there are uh, narrow branching valleys, broad ones, and as you get into the of interior Ontario, they, they change character again. Um, so one of we did is sort of do the same experiment on Mars, rather than just say there are valleys on Mars that look like river valleys on Earth. Um, the first thing we did is try and categorize or classify all the different kinds of valleys, what their shapes were, what their uh, how their different looks, how many different kinds of looks we could find. Right. So those different valleys and shapes would indicate perhaps a different type of flow. Exactly. So on so the Canadian example, when you go from west to east, you're looking at valleys that are produced by fast-flowing water in the mountains or very slow-flowing ice in Ontario. And they have, uh, you know, their, their fingerprints on the surface are very different. Um, and uh, that's essentially the same experiment we did on Mars. Uh, we looked at very old terrains and simply reconstructed or added up the contributions from uh, water that was flowing at the surface, uh, ice flowing in broad valleys, and water flowing beneath uh, ice sheets. They all have different expressions in, uh, in the landscape. And what we found was that the predominant expression in the landscape was a vestige of uh, channelized water flowing beneath ice sheets, something that we infer for Antarctica and actually observe in Greenland today. Isn't that interesting? I think it's fascinating as sort of a, an interesting and, you know, maybe patriotic side note that you looked at the Devon Ice Cap, you looked at areas in the Canadian Arctic to help you understand what Mars might look like. Absolutely. Uh, so the Devon, uh, Devon Island itself is um, perhaps the most compelling analog for a modern Mars uh, on Earth. It's a polar desert. And one of the advantages of being a polar desert is there's very little erosion. Um, so we were able to uh, remap or image photographically and then remap a number of different techniques. Uh, channels that were that, uh, that melt water from the last ice age used um, to drain into the ocean as the last ice sheet, the long tide ice sheet, melted back towards the, towards the North Pole. 
Um, and the fingerprints that those channels left behind are quantitatively identical. Um, the majority of valley systems that for which we have data on Mars. Um, when, so it's a very different picture to the early warm, wet Mars story. Um, the climate that we would predict or that's more consistent with the observations is more akin to Antarctica today. When you're standing there on the Devon ice cap in the Canadian Arctic and you're looking out, do you think to yourself, wow, this is what it must be like to stand on Mars, even just a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Um, and not just uh, the similarity in landscape features, overwhelming bigness of it and uh, uh, and the scale. It's a completely arresting place to work. And um, Canada is uh, um, really lucky to, to have it essentially as a preserve as well. So it's, it's an absolutely remarkable place. Can the research that you've done be applied to our planet as well? Because you've done research on our planet and you've applied it to Mars, but can we do that in reverse? Can we apply it to our own planet to learn more about our own geological history? Absolutely. So the, the, the tools that we created or produced um, basically produced a, a methodology that allows you to take the image you see with your eye as you're flying over the landscape from an airplane. Um, and infer the underlying process. So something that we are uh, exploring with regards to Earth history is the extent to which we can reconstruct Earth's glacial past over not just the last million years, which we have lots of data for, particularly from ice cores, um, perhaps the last billion years, um, simply by trying to use information in the, that's preserved in the way the landscape has eroded, where these erosional features are preserved. Isn't that so We have an opportunity to study ice ages for a long way back, uh, certainly at least back to the beginning of Antarctica, which is about 35 million years ago. Wow, that is incredible. Well, Mark Jelinek, it was such a pleasure being able to chat with you. Thank you so much for sharing your research with us. Thank you very much for your time.